constantly need a refreshing of the Holy Spirit to do the work of God and to not fulfill the lust of the flesh, which is to walk in sin and to walk in and give in to these temptations that surround us on a daily basis. And we see that Jesus gives us that example because, one, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's obedient to the Holy Spirit because in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. All right, so the Holy Spirit's like, all right, come on, let's, let's go this way because you're about to be tempted by Satan after 40 days of fasting. Jesus overcomes these three temptations. You guys remember this. These three temptations were unique to the Son of God, right? These three temptations were not necessarily for you and I because we're not the Son of God. And so they were unique to Jesus. Jesus overcomes them because he's obedient to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And thankfully, he was obedient because if he wasn't perfect and he didn't abide by the law and perfect the law and fulfill the law, then we would have no atonement for our sin. There would be no perfect sacrifice for our sin. So we have that going for us. We're thankful that Jesus was able to do that. But then Jesus also gave us examples of how we can overcome temptation, and you guys saw that last week. So verse 14, let's jump right into it. Remember, Satan left in verse 13 he, he, after he had uh, stopped his temptations but the end of verse 13 says that he departed from him until an opportune time, right? So Satan, if there's one thing to be said about him, is that he doesn't give up, right? It's like he already knows he's losing, and he still doesn't give up. He's not a quitter. So he comes back at an opportune time. We're to remember that Satan will come back and tempt us. So in verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. He goes into the desert to be, to be tempted. He has a need of the Holy Spirit, giving us an example that we have a need of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he does is he goes out and he teaches truth, because that's what people need to hear. Because people are lost and they're blind. And so they need truth to guide them and to free them. And so Jesus goes all about, he says, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And he was teaching in the synagogues. And the news of what he was teaching and the things that he was doing was spreading. Now imagine this. I, you guys are really young. So you guys were born into this, this time and this culture of uh, like really fast and easy communication right? Like, you guys pretty much have had iPhones. iPhones came out, like, when? 2007? Yeah, so that's how many years ago? 14 years ago? 13? 14? It's 2001. 14, but 13, 14 years ago. You get the point. Some of you aren't even that old. Some of you are 17, 18. And even before then, we had phones. So there was always constant, easy communication. We had computers. We had email. You know, we had TV, which the news got out. I remember when 9-11 happened. Was anybody in here born when 9-11 happened? Wow, now that's crazy to me. So I remember I was in middle school when 9-11 happened, and I saw the very first replay. Like, it was minutes after it had just happened. So news just spread so quickly. It was easy because of our technology. And so I'm thinking, okay, how is this happening in the Old Testament? as we're learning on Wednesdays, as well as now in the New Testament when Jesus is preaching and teaching 
and he's being glorified, and people are amazed, and they hear, and the news is just spreading. Like, that's amazing to me that it was able to get out in such a way without technology. So again, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going from one synagogue, and you've got to think of a synagogue like, like a church. Okay, that's where they met to read the Bible, to teach the Bible, to sing, uh, to give benediction, um, and it would often last like a really long time. Thankfully, we have a time limit because you guys get hungry. We got to go get lunch, right? So often it would not last a really long time, and they would have different people come up and read, and they would have different people come up and teach. And so Jesus, being this guest speaker, guest visitor, coming, well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself, he's going to come back to Nazareth, and he's actually going to teach in Nazareth where he's originally from. But again, the word and the fame of Jesus is spreading. Now, why is it that when Jesus teaches, it's different than when other people were teaching? You ever thought of that? I mean, obviously, he's God, right? But remember, they were amazed and they were astonished at what he was saying because Jesus taught truth, he expounded on it, that people were able to understand it, and he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are many people today who teach the Word of God without the power of the Holy Spirit, which leaves you ineffective. You cannot do the work of God without the Spirit of God. And somebody who is a horrible teacher through the power of the Holy Spirit can give the best message, even though from you know, outside ears they might think, what the heck did he just say? That was horrible. But it will land on the hearts because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we understand that. So Jesus is teaching. He's being glorified. In verse 16, he comes back to Nazareth. It says where he says where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So Jesus comes back to his hometown. It's a Sabbath day, and specifically on the Sabbath day, uh, the, the meetings would be a lot longer. But he's coming back where he grew up, his childhood friends, people that, that knew him, okay? These weren't just random people who didn't know who he was. They knew who he was. It was close-knit. They knew his family. They knew who he was. And they're even going to question at one point, isn't this Joseph's son? So everyone knows who Jesus is based on his upbringing. So in verse 17, he's handed a book, or more appropriately, a scroll, because they didn't really have books. So he's got a scroll. He opens it up. And I want to say ironically, but purposefully, it is opened up to the book of Isaiah. So you got to remember, when they are studying the word of God here in the New Testament, they don't have the New Testament, right? <laughs> they are in the New Testament. They are the New Testament, in a sense. So they're reading of the Old Testament, and so they have the book of Isaiah. And Jesus turns it to chapter 61 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 2. And he doesn't read the entirety of verse 2, but he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, to put in context, we've got to remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the Nazarites, right? He's speaking to the Jews. And if you guys have been in any, other, any Bible study recently, you understand that the Jews thought of, thought of themselves as better because they were, in a sense, the children of God, right? They were the chosen nation by God to represent him. 
So they always thought of themselves as better. They always thought of themselves as more religious. They always thought of themselves as, as having a genuine relationship with God when they actually didn't. And so since they thought they were better, that means that they despise other groups who were not Jews, which we call Gentiles, right? A majority of us, not all of us, but a majority of us in this room are Gentiles because we are not Jewish. So if you were not Jewish, you were a Gentile. And so they looked down upon the Gentiles, and they thought the Gentiles were, in a sense, not worthy of God. That, that they almost thought that they were just fuel for the fire in hell. That's how low they thought of Gentiles, or more appropriately, that's how high they viewed their own selves. So Jesus, and I want to give you that context because what Jesus is about to say in a little bit is really going to ignite something in them. But he's reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verse, verses 1 and 2. And he says this, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now when Isaiah wrote this some 700 years prior to Jesus reading it in this moment, it was talking about the Messiah. And so now Jesus is reading it, and what he's going to say at the very end is basically he's going to say, that's me. Kind of like with a mic drop. I am the one that I just read. He's saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus, because I am the anointed one. And if you guys didn't know, the name Messiah actually means, anyone know? Anointed one, right? So a Messiah comes from the Hebrew word maskaiach. And it means anointed one or chosen one. And the Greek equivalent is the name, anyone know? What's Jesus' last name? I'm just kidding, it's not his last name. Christ, right? That's the Greek equivalent, that Christ is the same as Messiah, meaning and pointing to the anointed one. Anytime that there's an anointing in the Bible, usually... uh, represents the Holy Spirit, and usually it's represented through some type of oil or something. So Jesus Christ is anointed upon by the Holy Spirit, who is, Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the Redeemer, the Anointed One, the Christ, that Isaiah is referencing to. And he is the one that the Jews are looking for because they know that he's coming, right? They know that the Messiah is coming, and they're excited that he's going to come, but they're excited for a different reason, They think that when their Messiah comes, he's going to save them as a people from the the rule of the Romans and anyone else that oppresses them. And anyone else, any other enemies or anyone else that is not a Jew, they think their Messiah is going to save them from their current situation. Did Jesus come for that reason? No, he came to save them spiritually and not so much physically. Did he help with the physical? Yes. But the purpose was the spiritual, and not just for the Jews, but for everyone, right? The Jews and the Gentiles, thankfully, because I'm a Gentile. So Jesus is the anointed one. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus, or Isaiah, gives us five things that he's going to overcome, five things in regards to the fivefold damage that sin brings. We can look at these things and think, oh, God's going to come and he's going he's to free the oppressed, right? He's going he's to free the slaves. You know, Jesus was very purposeful 
injustice on earth, very much so. But he was more purposeful about the spiritual. Because really, all our problems that stem on earth, any injustices, anything that happens that is wrong and unfair on earth, stems from sin. Okay? We have to understand that. And if we can deal with, with the root of the problem, then we can start to deal with, with physical, literal things that are happening in our time now or happening then. So when Jesus speaks of preaching the gospel to the poor, it's, it's yes, it can be said of to the poor who don't have any money, but really it's to the poor in spirit, just like we see in the Beatitudes when Jesus preaches in the gospel. It says that he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, right? Sin, it, it breaks hearts. Whether it's the sin that you've committed or sin that somebody has committed that has affected you and has broken your heart. The third thing we see is that it proclaims liberty to the captives. Not captives so much that are in prison, but those who are in bondage and imprisoned in sin. If you guys know and you've experienced that, this really resonates with you. When we've been captive to the sin that we're in, when Jesus unshackles and frees us from it, it is beautiful. That's the gospel. He came to free us from these things. It says, and he also says, and to give recovery of sight to the blind. Well, who are the blind? Well, everyone who doesn't know Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 says this, But even if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We all, at one point or another, were blinded and walking in darkness because that is what the God of this age wants and did. And Jesus set us free from it, and he wants to set you free from it if you are not. And the fifth thing that we see that sin does, that, that Jesus wants to do through the gospel, through his gospel, he is the gospel, is that he wants to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And, and another word for oppressed is downtrodden. Those who are crushed, shattered, broken, mistreated. And that's all of us in this room. And Jesus came to free us from that, to give us liberty where we can have joy and peace. He says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus presents the gospel. Isaiah presents the gospel through, these, through this verse. And then Jesus personifies it because he is the gospel. He says, I am the anointed one. I am the one who is going to do all these things for you. And their listeners were like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's amazing. You know, some, some probably thought, okay, well, he's going to really set the captives free. We are being oppressed by the Roman government. Maybe he's going to set us free, and he's going to give sight to the blind because there's a lot of blind people. I don't know if you guys noticed in the Gospels, there's a lot of blind people. And Jesus is going left and right, slapping mud and spit in their face and making them see. And Jesus was all for that. But first and foremost, he's like, look, man, I, I don't care if you get up and, and pick up your bed and walk, but more so, I want your sins to be forgiven. And then you can pick up your bed and walk to prove that I can actually forgive your sins. So Jesus was all about that. Jesus didn't come to heal every illness and sickness and, and every problem. He came to fix the problem of sin. And he came to cancel it and to redeem us from the bondage and the slavery and the captivity of sin. So we see that in verse 18, but then Jesus goes on, goes on to read in verse 19, 
which is actually part of verse 2 in Isaiah 61, he says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is reference to uh, Jubilee, which is in the law of Moses, the 50th year in the time of the Israelites, that every 50 years, slaves were released, debts were forgiven, and family farms and land were returned to original owners. So through those 50 years, you know, stuff would happen. And then every 50th year, it was almost like there was just a reset button. Let's go back and let's start over. And the idea here that we get is that Jesus is the gospel. He saves us from sin and the things of sin, which we see in, this, in verse 18. And with that, we are made new, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things, uh, all things have passed, and you get the point. So we are new creations. It's like we have a new beginning. And when we accept, when we believe in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross, and we're born again, it's like a reset button. We start over because we've been forgiven and we've been cleansed. And so he, he speaks, Isaiah speaks of this accept, acceptable year of the Lord. But when the Nazarites hear this, they think, this is now our year. Our homeboy has come back, right? We all know him. He's doing these amazing miracles. He, he's preaching with authority. This is our guy. This is the Nazarite. This is, this is the Jew. This is the Messiah who's going to save us from the things that we want him to save us from, not so much the internal spiritual sinful things. And they think this is our year. This is our year where we have favor in God. So he reads it. But interestingly enough, if you guys had looked at Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 2, there's a comma at the end of to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So he didn't read the rest of it. And we'll talk about why he did not read the rest of it in a minute. But he stops. He closed the book in verse 20, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. So one of the things that happened in the synagogue in that time was usually they would all read up, or they would all stand up to read the scripture, right? So like when we read the scripture, we, we typically sit, but they would give, in a sense, reverence to the scripture, so they would all stand up, even the teacher. But once the teacher was done reading the word of God, the teacher would actually sit down, and everyone else would, would stand up. So that's what's happening here is that Jesus goes to sit down, and so they're all ready to hear, okay, now he read it, now what is he going to say to expound on it, right? How, like, what is he going to say so that we can understand what that means? So it says, and, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Man, they were, they were just intently listening and curious as to what he was going to say. It means to look intently or to stare at. And he says this in verse 21. He began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Man, imagine like, I get like goosebumps. I am living the word of God right now. Like, that's, all he, that's not all he said. That would be an amazing sermon. How many, ver, how many, how many uh, words is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You guys would love that, right? Say eight words and we're done. Eight words. He says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, at that moment, claims to be the one described in the scripture. He's claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah, even though the, uh, the Isaiah wrote of this over 700 years ago. So they hear this, 
This is what happens. This is a response in verse 22. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So I'm sure that Jesus went on to say more things, but Luke only tells us of these things that he said right here. And they were marveling at these gracious words that come out of his mouth. And they question, they say, is this not Joseph's son? So at first they're amazed and they're fixated on him. Jesus says, today the scripture is fulfilled. I am he. I am the Messiah. I am here to do what Isaiah said I was going to do. Then they start thinking, didn't we grow up with this guy? Didn't I have first grade with him with Miss Miller's class? Isn't he the same kid that did this? Now, Jesus never sinned, so that's really interesting to think of, like, a five-year-old not sinning, right? Or an eight-year-old not sinning. But they grew up with him. And so they start questioning, like, is this not Joseph's son? And obviously, Jesus, understanding the intents of our heart and our thoughts, whether they said this audibly or not, understood that this is what they were thinking. Is this not just the mere kid that we grew up with? The kid down the block. So this is what Jesus says to them. He says, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. For some reason, what is familiar to us, we don't, for some reason, we don't think that God can work through the familiar. That the things that we know, that it's got to be some crazy, outside, supernatural thing. And so oftentimes, prophets were never accepted by their own community and their own people because they were just too familiar to them. And yet God was working, but they rejected that God was working. And so Jesus knew this is what they were thinking. And he knew they were thinking, okay, he claims to be the Messiah. Now, more than just claiming it, I want you to prove it. And they always wanted proof through miracles, right? And Jesus said, blessed are those who, 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 who don't see miracles, who don't see, but yet believe. There's many of us who have not seen miracles, yet we believe and we call that faith. There's nothing wrong with miracles. Jesus performed miracles. But without unbelief, a miracle is going to do nothing, and it's going to yield nothing. It will not prove to you that Jesus is God and Messiah. You will still reject that notion without faith. Miracles don't even bring you faith. What brings you faith? The hearing of the word of God. And so that's why Jesus was all about preaching the word of God and living it. So they say, he says, look, you probably say this to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you did in Capernaum, do it here. Heal the blind, make the lame walk, do these things. You know, physician, heal yourself. It's ironic. It's like, you know, uh, look, if you're a doctor, I want you to be, like, healthy, right? Like, if you're a fitness instructor, I want you to be healthy. If you're a baker, I want you to, I want you to have some pounds on you, right? Like, because that's going to show me that the food is good, what you're making, right? I don't want a skinny person making my food. That doesn't make sense. So, like, physician, heal yourself, Jesus says, look, a prophet is not accepted in his own country. And he gives them this story in the Old Testament. He says, I tell you truly, in verse 25, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon, 
to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus is going to give them a story that they already know of, but they're probably going to take it a different way in the context of what Jesus is sharing with them. So the first reference he, he, he gives is Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. And God used Elijah in this time. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 17. He used Elijah to proclaim a drought over all of Israel. So for three and a half years, there was a drought. And they, provide, they, were, they had to live off the land. So when there was a drought, they couldn't live off the land because there was no food. There was no food and there was no uh, food for the livestock. So Elijah proclaims a drought because it was in response to the wickedness of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And a result of that, Elijah was then hunted down, right? They're like, dude, we don't like you. So they tried to find him. They tried to kill him. And God provided for him. God provided in such a way that ravens would come and they would bring him meat and bread every day. Isn't that amazing? Like, dude, yeah. A raven bringing me a steak and some red lobster rolls, right? That's, That's what I want. So every day, this, a raven would come, but eventually, because of the drought, the brook, it dried up, which meant that the raven would not come anymore. And so God then sends Elijah to the neighboring country of Sidon to provide for him, and he finds a widow where this widow is picking up sticks, and it's one of the saddest just interactions that you will see in the Bible. So she's picking up sticks because she's going to make a fire, and she says that she has just enough ingredients to make one last meal for her and her son. They, she, she literally says something like, I have enough to make one last meal, and then we're going to die. Like, she literally plans, okay, we're going to eat this last meal, and then we, we plan to die, because we have nothing left. Imagine being in that situation. So, Elijah says, okay, give me that last meal. That's what he says. He says, go back and, and make me some cake. That's what he says. The cake is like some type of bread, not like some lemon cake, Right? So he says, go, go and make me some cake. And this was where her testing was at, right? Do I, do I, it's not that I'm trusting in this random man. It's am I trusting in God and what he's saying? And so she does. And what happens is after she does that, there was uh, leftovers for her and her son. And this happened day after day after day after day. And God continually provided not just for Elijah, but for the widow. How amazing is that? So that's the first reference that we get to. You guys can read that in 1 Kings 17. So we see the, the accepting of, of the word of God from her and then her obedience to it. Then the other references from the prophet Elisha who takes over for Elijah. I wish they would have just had two completely different names. It's too confusing. So then we've got Elisha, or we'll call him Ricardo, right? So we've got Ricardo who takes over for um, Elijah. And this is a reference to the Syrian general named Naaman. And you guys can read this story in your own time. And Naaman was uh, wealthy, he was powerful, but he had leprosy. And when you have leprosy, you're done. It's pretty much just a death sentence that will just deteriorate and cripple your body. And so there, he had a girl, he had a slave girl who was a captive from Israel and she knew of Elisha's reputation, so she encouraged Naaman to go and see him. She knew that Elisha had the power of God and could do many miracles. So she said, well, why don't you go see him? So he goes to see him. Elisha tells him, look, I want you to, 
this is how you're going to be healed. I want you to jump in the Jordan River seven times, and then you'll be healed. Would you do it? I mean, at some point, when you're desperate, you'll try anything, right? But when you're so prideful, you won't do it. And Naaman was full of pride. He's like, I'm speaking for him. That's too simple. That's too easy. And the Jordan River, that's disgusting. It wasn't a nice river. It was like going to Jordan Lake. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's brown. It's gross. Where I'm from, there's a bunch of beautiful, nice rivers. Why didn't I just do that? And so he went, he went home angry. And the slave girl talks to him and says, look, no, you need to go and do it. She begs him, and she says to him something that's just profound. She says, look, if the prophet had commanded you to perform some difficult task or to pay some elaborate sum of money, wouldn't you have done it? And he thinks about it, and he's like, yeah, actually, I would have done it. So she's like, well, why not then just simply jump into the Jordan River? And this is a, per- I don't have time for it, but this is a perfect example of the gospel. It is the gospel. Sometimes we think it's too simple, it's too easy. You mean I don't have to do anything? No, you don't. It's Jesus who has done everything. And all you have to do is believe he's done all the work. You're like, it's too simple. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's simple enough. If it was any harder, we would take credit for it, or we would not know how to do anything. So Jesus makes it simple enough. So Naaman, he puts his pride aside, and he jumps into the Jordan River seven times, and the seventh time he came out healed. But one of the things that's important to notice when Jesus brings up these stories in the Old Testament is how he prefaces each story. In each case, he says, I want you to look. In the first case, he says, and he notes, how there were many widows in the land in Elijah's day, but Elijah was sent to none of them except for the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the second case, he notes that there were many lepers in Israel in Elisha's day, but none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And, and when they hear this, when they understand it, they know that Sidon and Syria, they're mentioned many times in the scriptures, but they're often the ones who oppressed Israel. They were Gentiles. They were considered cursed by God. Yet in both of these stories, it is the Gentile outsider who gets the blessing because they responded in faith and obedience. The Jews don't like that. They didn't like that. So it says in verse 28, So all those in the synagogue, they went from wonder and amazement to madness and rage. All those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. I love, in a sense, I love that. Because Jesus was offensive. Jesus is offensive. The Bible and the word of God is offensive. There's many times when I've had to preach on something, pretty much everything that I preach on can be offensive and is offensive, but there's some things that just hit us that we don't like to hear, and that's a good thing because it is, it is chipping away at the hardness of our hearts and the sin in our hearts because that's what truth does. Truth opens up the blinds and reveals the nastiness and the darkness, and we don't like that. We want to shut it up, and we don't want it revealed. We like it. We love our filth, and so when we, when we present the truth, oftentimes people hate it and don't like it, one of the great quotes that I've heard in the past couple years is that there's many pastors today where people don't want to kill them, right? So in a sense, it's, it's these pastors and these preachers who are being adored and loved because they're not preaching the truth. They're preaching what people want to hear. And when I hear what I want to hear, I love you, right? The Bible says that they'll, they'll raise up teachers who will tickle their ears. 
Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me I'm a good person. Tell me that God will love me no matter what. That's true, but you also got to tell them that there's consequences to sin, that you need to repent, that you need to turn from it. You, it can't just be one-sided. When it's just one-sided and it's all about you and God's love, you're missing the other half of it. You're missing, if, if you only have half truth, it's a full lie. And so we need the whole truth. And the truth is stinking offensive. Again, it, it combats the very person that you are. It combats your heart. It challenges your heart. Well, I, I love this. I'm into this. I was born this way. I feel this way. Well, no, no, no. You don't go based on you and what you feel, your notions, your ideas, your knowledge, because all of that is tainted by sin. You, there is one truth and there is one absolute truth which comes from truth, Jesus Christ, the word of God. And so when we hear truth, it hurts. It's offensive, but it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing. Jesus wasn't offensive to these people because he wanted to just cause a commotion. He wanted to upset them. He wanted them to know what the truth was so that they would submit to it and that they would be freed from the slavery of sin. But there's one of two responses to truth. You either accept it or you reject it. And they rejected it through their pride. They didn't want the Gentiles to be accepted like them. They didn't want to be called out for their sin. So they got angry. So angry. Imagine this. Like, I, thankfully, you guys don't, like, after service, pick me up and try to stone me. Thank you for that. But this is what they did. It says they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. And that was, that was one of the ways that they started their stoning. They would throw someone off the cliff, and then they would take stones, and they would throw it at him. So they wanted to kill Jesus. Imagine that. They, they started off like, this is our homeboy. He's coming to save us. We love him. Wow, we are amazed at everything he's saying. We're fixated on him. The gracious words that are coming out of his mouth. And Jesus continues on with the truth, and he just, he just hits something in them. And the truth pricks their heart, and it cuts them. And you either see this response where they're filled with wrath and hate because they love their sin too much, or you see the response in Acts chapter 2 when the gospel is preached, and we see that they were cut to the heart, and rather than trying to stone Peter, they said to Peter, what shall we do to be saved? One of two responses. And you see Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian church, when he presented the gospel, basically just reciting the Old Testament to the council. And it, I can't remember the exact words it says, but they were so angry that they were, they were gnashing, gnashing their teeth. They brought Stephen out and they stoned him and killed him because they were rejecting the truth. One of two responses. So they, they, they grabbed Jesus and they were going to throw him over the cliff. And remember, they wanted a miracle right? They wanted a miracle from Jesus. Do something. Well, let's read verse 30. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. There's their miracle, and yet they didn't even see it. They were so full of anger and pride and hatred. They grabbed Jesus. They wanted to, they wanted to throw him over the cliff, but in the midst of that, they lost him. I don't know if Jesus was just squirrely, and he was able to get out of the hands of people, or if he did some, you know, cool, like, you know, they tried to grab him, but they couldn't type thing, or they just didn't know. Whatever it was, it was a miracle because this crowd of people 
could not take Jesus to kill him because it wasn't his time, right? So Jesus here performs a miracle at the end of this to prove that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, but also it wasn't his time to die. I love the humor there that, that he, they grab him, but then he just passed through the midst of them, and he's like, he just walks his way. Could you imagine, like, they're like, okay, wh- where did he go? What, what happened? And they're all trying to figure out what happened, not understanding what just happened. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for this morning and your word. Jesus, we thank you for the example that you have set before us. Jesus, that you are the gospel and you are truth. There's many of us in this room who are hurting, we're broken, we're downtrodden. Lord, even though if, if we may know you and we have been born again, Lord, we are not exempt from hurt and pain. So I pray if there's anyone in here, Lord, that they would turn your, their cares to you. Lord, you tell us to turn to you and that we can find our rest in you. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you present. Lord, I thank you for the gospel that is inclusive to all, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. That you tell us that those who, who, who seek you will find you. And that you give grace to the humble. So Lord, we thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.